And we'll be in chapter number 7 tonight, chapter number 7 of the book of Daniel. We have talked about it on a few occasions, but the genre for the entire book is, is prophecy. Daniel is a prophetic book, uh, even though the first uh, six chapters are our narrative, there's still prophecy contained in those uh, first six chapters. And we've seen that as we've gone through through the first ch- six chapters of the book. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar himself is a, a clear type of the Antichrist, even though he, in, I think he ended up saved and ended up in heaven. Uh, part of his life, he, was, he served as a type of the Antichrist, just like Darius the Mede did. He served as a type of the Antichrist because at one point they both demanded worship, which is what the Antichrist is going to do when when he takes power on this earth. And so the, the book has a lot of uh, prophetic implications, especially in the first six chapters, but, but even more so as we begin chapter number seven. We're going to be dealing with uh, nothing but a full dose of prophecy. And it's very complicated prophecy. And it's uh, uh, one of the neat things about it, if you've read chapter seven through 12, and I'm sure you have at times in your life, there are interpretations given for the prophecies, just like there are in Revelation. And so, so you get some help with it. But even with the help that you're given in those interpretations, uh, it's still very difficult to, to dogmatically interpret uh, chapter, any chapter from 7 to 12. And, and I'm not going to even try to do that. I, I think I will explore some of the options in the interpretations, but, but we're not going mean, to be setting any dates here. Uh, we're not going to be figuring out who the Antichrist is here, but I actually believe, and I, I guess I could get a show of hands, but I actually believe that we are living in the very last days before Jesus Christ returns. And that's in very important and very significant to a study of Daniel because Daniel spends some of his time prophesying about the, the immediate events that are going to take place during his life and after his life. He also prophesies about the coming Christ. But a good portion of his book or a good portion of these last few chapters is about the very end days when the Antichrist will come on the scene and we, the earth will go into the great tribulation. So, you know, if you believe you're in the very last days, then these chapters have more significance for us than they have at any other time in history. And they do, because at the very least, we're closer to the end times than anybody else has ever been. I believe we're at the very end. I believe we're at the very end, and I believe the the big time clock is Israel. And when Israel became a nation, uh, that end time time clock really started moving really fast. And and, uh, when you read the prophecies about Israel going into the Great Tribulation and the events that are taking place on earth when that, when that happens. Uh, just read the newspaper, read the headlines, look at what's going on in our country today, and, and, and you, can, you can say, hey, we're here. We've arrived in the, very, in the very last days. And so I want to see what this book has to say about the very last days because I believe I'm in them, and I believe you're in them. Now, are we in the Great Tribulation yet? No, we're not in the Great Tribulation. Could it be 100 years before the Great Tribulation begins? Maybe so. Uh, could it be tomorrow? Yeah, it could be tomorrow. And so uh, I'm very interested in, in what this book has to say. And, and 
Uh, I'm sure you are too. Uh, and, and again, these last five chapters are purely, purely prophetic. Uh, in chapter 7, we're going to be given this vision of four beasts, which represent four future, in Daniel's eyes, represented four future kingdoms uh, that have dominion and power some, at some point in history. Most scholars, most scholars, prophetic scholars, believe that the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 are same as the four beasts in Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? Who was the head? The Babylon was the head of gold. And then uh, the, the uh, chest and arms of silver was the Mede and Persian Empire. I agree with that totally. The bronze sides and waist represented Greece, and the legs represented Rome, and the feet that were partially iron and clay represented the kingdom of the Antichrist in the very last days. So there's five kingdoms in this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, or in this dream he has that Daniel interprets in chapter number two. Now, how do you think? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you think it's a repeat of chapter number two? I mean, everybody see everybody shaking their head. Let's, 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 let's hear the thing out. And then I want you to kind of keep your ears open and, and, and use your, put your thinking cap on and uh, uh, open up your heart to what the Spirit might want to teach you and determine in your own mind whether or not uh, these kingdoms listed in chapter 7 are the same in, in Daniel chapter 2. So, so uh, uh, let's read, let's read the, the first few verses and, and you tell me what you think. All right, let's go to verse number 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while he, on his bed and then rewrote down the dream Telling the main facts. Now, the first year of Belshazzar was somewhere around 553 A.D. 14 years before the Babylonian Empire fell. So, so they're right in the middle of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire didn't last long. We're actually toward the latter part of the Babylonian Empire. Not really in the middle. But there's 14 years left when he has this dream. And in that year, he had a dream with visions. Now, that's really interesting. Sometimes you'll see someone have a dream in the Bible or you'll see someone have a vision in the Bible. But he had a dream. And within that dream, he had these visions, these very uh, uh, colorful visions while he lay on his bed. And these visions were very specific and they were very clear. And so he wrote them down in chapter seven. Now, why did he write them down? He wrote them down so on September the 23rd, 2015, Calvary Chapel of Lafayette could look at his visions and, and, and look at his dream and we could make our own interpretation. Now, obviously, he didn't have us in mind, but he did have future generations in mind. And man, I'm so glad that Daniel wrote these visions down. Now, I think it's very important here that he mentions, he dates his dream. It's very important that he dates his dream. 
And he dates all of his dreams and all of his visions. He always gives us a hint to let us know when he had that vision. And the reason he does, did that was because the Holy Spirit knew about higher criticism and how people would criticize the Bible over the years and they would doubt these dates. And the reason they doubt the dates of the book of Daniel, so many of the dates, is because all of the prophecies came true. All the ones that haven't been fulfilled yet, they all came true exactly as he said they would. And so what do the liberal scholars say? They say he didn't write them, that someone in a later date wrote them. And so Daniel specifically says, I wrote these in 553 B.C. And scholars will say, no, he couldn't have written them then. Some author in the first century or maybe in 200 B.C. or something like that wrote down these visions. But Daniel, there's no way he could have, he could have uh, had, had these dreams and he could have predicted the future like that. Now, what are they saying when they say that? You know, whenever I pick up a I told you about when we first started the book of Daniel, I had one commentary somebody had given me while I was in seminary. I said, yeah, I'm going to read this commentary before we get started. It was about a month before we started the book of Daniel. And the very first thing in the book, he talked about how there were more than one Daniels and how there were Daniels that wrote later and added to, the, to, to Daniel's prophecies because there's no way Daniel could have predicted this goat, this, this ram coming down and, and, and the name of that ram is Greece. And, and from, that, from Greece came four empires. We know it's the Solution Empire. Uh, and, and there's no way he could have predicted that. So somebody had to write it after those events happened. Well, as soon as I see something like that, I trash it. Because what are they saying about the credibility of the Bible? They're saying it's, you know, it's a fraud. And, it, and if you think the Bible's a fraud, I mean, go read the Quran or something. I mean, don't, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. My wife said, I don't know why you ever say that, because you can't have your cake and eat it, too. But, but uh, you can't call yourself a biblical scholar and then degrade the Bible. I mean, wait, if you want to be a scholar of something important, you don't want to you don't be a scholar of a fraudulent book. So, so by faith, you've got to believe that, that, that Daniel did have this vision. And what he did write down is accurate and true. And that's what makes it so exciting. And I got to tell you, there's some prophecies in there that, that, that we're going to see later on, like the prophecy of the very day Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Daniel prophesied it. And for, for, and, and for a scholar to look at that, and you can figure it out pretty easily, and for a scholar to look at that, you either got to believe one of two things, that God can predict the future, and he gave it to Daniel, or Daniel was a liar. And somebody after the days of Jesus Christ wrote those events down. But we know that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, that he knows the future before the future happens, that in his eyes he's already seen the future, and that he could tell the future to his prophets. And so we believe that. We know that. That's not just, that's just, not just wishful thinking. We know that. How do we know that? We know that by the Spirit of God. By faith, we know that God created the things that are visible out of things that are invisible. The only way you can believe that is by faith. And if you have real faith, you believe that. If somebody can rob you of that, you don't have real faith. If somebody can convince you that, that God didn't do it that way, then you don't have real faith. And if I have people get mad at me about that and say, well, I believe in all of evolution and I don't believe God created the things that are visible are the things that are invisible. I don't believe he created everything by his word. Well, tough. It, it don't make you right. Uh, 
By faith, the faith that God has given me, I know that God has created the earth and he created it in seven days. That might seem silly to the world, but it doesn't seem silly to me because I don't serve a silly God. I serve an omniscient God, an, an omnipresent God, an omnipotent God, a God with all power. He can do whatever he wants to do. And if that's not your God, then, then you're serving a different God and you've created a different God in your own, in your own image. And that's idolatry. And so anyway, uh, uh, Daniel uh, historically dates these prophecies. So we either got to believe he a liar or he was a prophet. It's one of the two. You can't, you can't, you got, you can't have it both ways. Daniel was either a liar. If he's a liar, why read the book? Why waste your time with any of it? Or he was a great prophet. And I have no doubt he was a great prophet. You know, when people add or take away from these prophecies, they're treading on very dangerous waters. John was very clear about what happens to someone who adds or takes away from his prophecy. And his prophecy parallels Daniel's to the T. And, and what did he say would happen to those people? They would be accursed. And I think the same thing is true of people who... who uh, refuse to believe uh, the book of Daniel is true prophecy. All right, now, so Daniel, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, had a dream of visions into his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And Daniel spoke, saying, I saw, maybe a better translation is there, I was looking. I was looking in my visions by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, in some texts, the great sea literally refers to the Mediterranean Sea. But I don't believe that's what it's talking about here at all. In prophecy, what does the sea always refer to? It refers to the mass of humanity. It refers to the people on this earth, all the people on this earth, not just a particular nation. And so what it's saying right here, behold, in, in my vision by the night, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, these seas of people. And, and, and just to prove my point, uh, we're told in Revelation that when the Antichrist comes, he comes up out of the sea. And then we're given the interpretation. He defines the sea for us in Revelation 17, 15. He says, then he said to me, the waters are the sea which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so it's very obvious from that definition that the sea is this uh, multitude or mass of humanity or sea of people. Now, here's what's really interesting here. Notice what happens. Now, keep your ears open. Stay wise and listen to me. There's something very interesting happening here. The, the fact that the winds of heaven are stirring, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Is that a picture of just overall history where the winds of heaven are stirring? No. When, when heaven stirs, what happens on earth? You stir things up in heaven, what's going to happen? If you blow a little wind up in heaven... What do you think is going to happen on earth? 
a great storm is about to take place. So see, this tells me that this event where these four beasts are seen, it, there's a great storm coming upon the earth. And, and it's, it's a great storm that causes a shaking of the nations that are on earth at that particular time. All right, so keep that in mind. And four, four, got it? Okay, got your thinking hat on? Four great beasts came up from the sea, each very different from the other. So they, had, they were sovereign nations, different languages, totally different from one another. And when I think of the kingdoms in Daniel's, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they were a lot alike. They weren't totally different. There wasn't four of them. There were five of them. So I start to see a problem right away with the traditional interpretation of, of chapter 7 of Daniel. But keep that in mind. All right. Now, who are the beasts? In prophecy, the beasts always represent nations. Who are the horns? The horns are the leaders of those nations. Okay, and in, 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 if you look down to verse number 17, it says the beasts are, be, are said to be great beasts, which are four kings. And really that's better translated kingdoms. It can, it can be translated king or kingdom. Four kingdoms which arise up out of the earth. And, and, and the reason you know that, because in context, in the next few verses, he speaks about the horn, then the little horn, coming from this beast. And these are the leaders of those nations. And so you got a difference between the beast and the horn. All right, and, and the horns are, are, like I say, are the, the, the kings, of the, not the kingdoms. And the little horn of the fourth beast is obviously who? He's the Antichrist. And you'll see that when we, when we, we, when we finish this up here in a little bit and when we get into the, in, in, in depth in chapter number seven. Now, again, note that these nations here, and looking back at, at uh, this verse, they're, they're different from one another, totally different from one another, four powerful nations. And then verse number three, uh, I mean, verse number four, the, the first was like a lion, which had eagle's wing. David, thank, thank you for David. David, I called him about, uh, texted him about five and asked him if he could get the slide up for me and he got it for me. So thank you. That, that, that's, you know, we don't know exactly what these beasts look like and, and, uh, uh, Daniel's vision, but maybe something along that line. Uh, you can see the, the lion with the eagle's wings. You can see the bear with the three ribs, and you can see the leopard with four heads and, and wings. And then you can see the, the, the dragon the, the, with the ten horns and the little horn coming up. And so you, you, uh, you have a picture there of, of these beasts. But let's look at the first one. The first was like a lion that, and, that had eagle's wings. And I watched until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on its two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Now we can learn something from that. If it had wings, how did it get around? Those wings got it around. It didn't have to stand on its feet. 
And then it stands on its feet. It stands on its feet. The wings are plucked off. That means they're taken away. He loses the wings. And he stands on his feet like a man. And he's given the heart of a man. So that tells me this is a very humanistic nation. It stands like a man. And, and, and it was dependent upon those wings. And suddenly those wings are, are plucked off. A really strange thing happens. I mean, this, here's this lion. He can fly anywhere he wants to go. All of a sudden, the wings are taken away and only the lion is left. And he stands on his feet like a man. Now, again, the tra tra traditional interpretation of this beast, the lion with the eagle's wings, is Babylon. It's Babylon. And, and you know, I'm not saying it's not. I can't, I'm not going to be dogmatic here tonight. But where I, I'll, I'll talk in, in a minute about where I struggle with the idea of Babylon. But to those who believe it's Babylon, archaeologists have found uh, on the gates of... Uh, uh, I wrote it down here. I don't know it. Uh, the gates of Ishtar, whatever that is, they have found these stone, these uh, lines with eagle wings made out of stones that guarded the gates of Ishtar, which is part of their, uh, I guess, part of the city of Babylon, uh, or actually guarding the gates of the Babylon. So that would that would make sense. All right. Now, here's your problem with making too much out of that. In ancient cultures, they put wings on about everything. They worship all sorts of different animals. I mean, Babylon worshiped a plethora of uh, paganistic, animalistic gods, and they put wings on all of them. So you can find winged goats and winged uh, frogs and wing everything. So, that, so just the fact they discovered wing lines doesn't necessarily mean that, yes, this has to be Babylon. Uh, here's the problem. What is, the author, what is Daniel trying to tell us when he tells us about the plucking off of the wings? Now, traditional scholars who believe that it's Babylon, what they say this event is, it's when Nebuchadnezzar is pulled away and sent out into the wilderness for those seven years. But well, you got to keep your metaphor straight. There's nothing about the horn being plucked away. There's, there's a nation that's plucked away. The titles the animalistic titles or the, title, the animal titles are only given to nations in this text. So you've got to stay consistent with it. So you've got a lion that represents a nation. You've got a leopard that represents a nation. You've got a dragon that represents an empire or a nation. And you've got a winged eagle. It's not just wings. If it said just wings, they might be right. But it said a winged eagle. Eagle, which represents a nation. And so I, I personally, I don't see the relationship between Nebuchadnezzar uh, being thrown out into the wilderness and, and this lion being made to stand on its two feet. And again, it was given a heart of man, which tells me it's a very humanistic nation. And Babylon was not a humanistic nation. 
It was a very pagan nation. Now, certainly, to some degree, if you're into paganism, you're into humanism. But, but I just don't see the relationship there. Now, let's, let's go to the next beast, number five. And suddenly, suddenly, not, not over a period, long period of history, suddenly, another beast, a second like a bear appeared. And he raised up on one side. And he had three ribs in his mouth. Now, what do you think those three ribs represent? No doubt the bear has devoured three other nations. So he has three ribs in his mouth. He has three ribs in his mouth between his teeth. Now, and and they, they said thus to it, arise and devour much flesh. So you got this bear who's, who's, uh, who has... It recently devoured three nations, and he's given, to, he's given power to devour much of mankind. Now, the traditional interpretation that this, is, this beast represents the Medes and the Persians. Uh, I, I, I don't know there's any place where, where a bear is found that represents the Medes and the Persians, so that's going to be a hard fit. But my biggest problem is that the Medes and the Persians weren't known for destroying much of humanity. This beast is going to devour flesh like no other beast who has ever been on this earth. And he's given power to devour flesh like no other beast that's been on this earth. So stop and think. He's a bear. And he's given this great power as this storm begins to blow on earth. All right, then look at, go to your uh, chapter 7 and look at verse number 6. And I looked and there was another beast, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. Now, notice that the wings of the bird, we're not told what bird it is. There's a reason for that. We're not told what bird it is because the I believe that it rep- the four wings represent four nations. The beast also had four heads and it represents four, and, and, and that represents four nations. But these are insignificant nations because they're not, giving, they're not given an animal to symbolize the nation. Together as a group, these four insignificant nations make a powerful nation that is like a leopard. Now, when we think of a leopard, what do we think of? We think of a ferocious cat that's very fast, that moves very fast across the earth. Okay, so there's no doubt that's what Daniel's trying to show us here, that you have this ravenous beast with great speed. Uh, and, and so it's made of four nations that are wreaking havoc very rapidly on the earth. Now, the traditional interpretation for the leopard is Greece. Now, I can almost buy into the fact that Greece is the leopard because Greece did roll across the earth at a very rapid pace. And one of the things that happened when Alexander the Great died, the Grecian Empire was divided into four pretty insignificant uh, kingdoms known as the Seleucid Empire. You ever study any intra-biblical uh, History. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting study. And one of the studies that you'll get into is this period of time known as the Seleucid Empire, where the Ptolemies ruled down in Egypt, and you had 
uh, Antiochus Epiphanes that ruled at one time. And, and so you had these four generals and the, and the Greece, Greek empire was divided up among these four generals. But when, when Alexander the Great went across the land and went across the earth, there was only one general. And that was Alexander himself when he was moving as a leopard. So I see this movement going very fast as being a coalition of four nations. Okay? And that does not fit with Daniel chapter 2 with his interpretation of Greece. I mean, it comes, you, you could make it fit, but I don't think it fits at all. All right, now, verse number 7. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, now here's the beast we want to really look at. A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trump, trampling the residue of its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So how many leaders does it have? Ten horns. It has ten horns, so ten leaders. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn. This is the Antichrist. Coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. Now we're looking at the Antichrist. And a mouth speaking pompous words. There's no doubt who the fourth kingdom is. And that does correspond with the fifth kingdom in Daniel's vision in chapter 2. But you're missing a kingdom. You're missing Rome. This is the revived Roman Empire. The, the, the feet of clay. And the feet of iron mixed together that never really mixes together. That's why three of these horns are slain by the Antichrist and ten remain. And they're given power for a season. And this corresponds exactly with Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. Let me just read you a few verses here. Revelation chapter 17. The ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. But they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. See how, see how perfectly that fits with Daniel? In Revelation 13, 5 and 6, we are told about the Antichrist. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God and to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted for him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority has given, was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that is no doubt the Antichrist speaking pompous words, as Daniel said, a mouth speaking pompous words, eyes of a man. Now, that interpretation does fit with the fifth kingdom or empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But again, where's the fourth? Now, we got just a few minutes here, and, and, and in finishing up, let me say real quickly, and you probably have figured it out, I don't agree with the popular, traditional interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. I don't agree with it at all. Now, am I, are they, they wrong and I'm right? I, I don't know. We'll have to, we'll, yeah, we'll, we, can, we can take bets and we'll collect in heaven if you want to do it. <laughs> I don't see it as a repeat of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And let me, let me tell you, give you a few reasons. And, and 
the first is obvious, as I've already said. There's five kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and there's only four kingdoms in, in uh, uh, Daniel's dream in chapter number seven. So uh, that right away raises a big red flag for me because in scripture, the scriptures are so consistent everywhere else on these issues. Why would they be inconsistent here? The second reason I've already sort of hinted at is, the, is that these kingdoms take power after the winds are blown in heaven. They already exist, but these winds are blown in heaven and these are the kingdoms that are in power when this great disturbance or this great storm on earth begins. We know this great storm to be what? The great tribulation. And these events are e either immediately preceding the great tribulation or are actually part of the great tribulation. And all of that, that happens suddenly. It doesn't happen over a period of time. It happens suddenly based upon a storm. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to tell you who's going to lead us into the great tribulation. It's going to be the Lord who leads us into the great tribulation. Now, you can blame it on the devil because the devil thinks he's the one doing it. And you can blame it on all the evil people of the world. And, and they certainly are heading straight off the cliff. And the devil's leading them right off the cliff into the great tribulation. But ultimately, it's, Lord, it's the Lord who finally says, I've had enough. And I'm going to judge this world. And I'm going to work, pull the church out of here. And I'm going to work with my nation, Israel, to, to, to get them ready to receive their Messiah. And so there's a storm that's got to take place. And the four winds of heaven have got to blow for that storm to come to earth. This heaven storm begins to move. It's not a historical, you know, thousands of years of empires. This is something that happens very rapidly. And I believe it refers to the great tribulation. And the other reason I believe that this refers to something other than Daniel's or Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter number two is that you have to force these symbolic beasts onto, somehow onto those four empires in Daniel chapter two. You don't have to force these beasts onto empires that exist today. You don't, have to, you don't have to do any forcing at all. I mean, again, there's no evidence that Greece was represented by a leopard. There's no evidence that, that Babylon was represented by a lion or, or so on down the line. Well, if I don't believe that these kingdoms are the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Daniel interpreted, then what kingdoms are they? That's what we want to look at for just a minute. Y'all got a minute or you want to pick that up next week? Well, you're just being nice, but we'll do it anyway. They're the kingdoms that will be on earth when this great storm we know is the great tribulation begins to you start seeing the really dark clouds and you see the storm coming. And you know, we're getting really close to the end. How many of you believe we're getting really close to the end? Well, if you really believe that, then it ought to be pretty easy to identify these four kingdoms 
as existing today. So let's see if we can identify who in the world would the line be with eagle's wings. That's two nations. We know that because we're given two animals as symbols of these nations. So it's not just one nation, it's two nations. It's a nation that's always been represented as a lion, a very humanistic nation, by the way. I'll tell you what, you want to check on England? They've always been represented by the lion. And apparently there's a close relationship between this lion and the nation with eagle's wings. You think maybe there's a close relationship between a nation we all know about and eagle's wings? Who's always been, in, as long as I've been alive, the nation that's been associated with eagle's wings? The United States of America. You know, 20 years ago, I, I couldn't even comprehend an interpretation like this. The United States was not going to be plucked away. We were too strong and too mighty of a nation. And we were too, as far as world standards go, we were too much of a moral nation for this to happen. Boy, my, how things have changed in 20 years. And what scares me is, you see Russia, the bear, by the way, I'll jump ahead a little bit, buzzing our coast with nuclear bombers. China running its ship through the Bering Strait. China today harassing a reconnaissance plane in international waters. And then you look at what's going on and the desecration of our country in, uh, on every front with the politicians in charge today. And man, I believe we could be plucked out of here at any minute. And before this nation's plucked out of here, the first thing that's going to happen, I believe, is the rapture. So you don't have to worry about it. If it's going to be 20 years before the rapture, you probably got 20 years. But I believe we're getting very close to the very end. And I believe the line with the eagle's wings represents England and the United States. Who bailed England out in World War I and World War II? We bailed them out. We were the wings that took them away and got them out of trouble. It was our wings. But now in, this, in time, those wings are going to be plucked away when the Great Tribulation begins, and they're going to have to stand on their own two feet. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And again, I, am I, can I be 100% dogmatic? No, but I can be about 99%. 90%. Well, the bear. I mean, you, got, you don't follow much news if you don't know who the big bear is. Russia is the bear. Do they have the capacity to devour much flesh? Most of the flesh on the earth through a nuclear war that you can read about in Revelation? Where, you, where you've got this star with a tail on it and a power in the head. Sounds like a missile to me. Read about it in Revelation. Kills a third of, one, third of mankind. Maybe there's a meteor there too, depending on how we, how we interpret some of those verses. But Russia is the bear. I mean, it's been the bear. It's interesting that recently it's devoured up three little nations, but they're always devouring nations and they can devour them up at any time. I don't know that the three is necessarily a number that means it has to be three nations. 
But as these times approach, they're going to be devouring up nations, I think is what it's telling us. And they're going to devour much flesh if it's Russia. Who's the leopard? Now, that's a, that one's harder to figure out. The leopard has four heads, but it's not, none of these heads are given one of these nationalistic symbols of an animal. So it tells me that it's probably four by themselves, four very insignificant nations. But as they're gathered together, they become a very significant force. ISIS kind of fits the bill. Coalition of Iran and, and uh, Iraq and some of those other countries, Jordan, kind of fit the bill. Coalition of Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Turkey would fit the bill and maybe one other country. L Libya and, and Iraq and, and some of these, I mean, you got these Sunnis and, and Shiites differences. And so that coalition will probably be one of the two that will come and devour uh, very, move very rapidly across the Middle East, heading where, ultimately? Heading towards Israel. Heading towards Israel. And out of all of this chaos, watch how this fits. Out of all of these beasts going to battle, up rises the Antichrist and the kingdom of the Antichrist. Listen to, listen to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, but his feet of a bear and his mouth like the lion. And the dragon gave him power and throne and great authority. So you could see how that would fit. How these nations are all kind of beat each other up. And then from that chaos arises the Antichrist who rules and reigns over the entire earth. And thus you have the image of the dragon, who's led by none other than Satan himself. Let me give you the good news. When that happens, time is short. The Antichrist is not the hero. The Antichrist is not the ultimate leader. The ultimate leader is on the horizon. In the next part of Daniel, we'll learn about that ultimate leader. I mean, he's infinitely greater and more powerful than the Antichrist. You know who he is? He's the Ancient of Days. That's what Daniel's going to tell us. He's going to come in the clouds of heaven. The one like the Son of Man. Sound familiar? We know who he is. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I, you know what I say to all of that? Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the encouragement from, that we can glean from studying these great prophecies, uh, not only in Daniel, but throughout your word, Lord, and, and just how powerful they are and how relevant they are into the days, into the days in which we live. Or we just, it's, it's, when we look at the news, it's, it's like reading Revelation in Daniel, and, and all of these events are are fitting right into these visions and these prophecies. Lord, so what's the lesson for us? Well, our lesson is to, to be busy doing your work until you come, Lord, to, to, to be like the virgins and be, have our lamps full so when you do appear that you do find faith on this earth, Lord, that you do find faith in us, that we're full of your spirit and that we're, we're, we're doing your will 
when you take us out of here, however that may be, Lord, if it be through a health issue or, or through, the, through the rapture or, or through whatever, that, that we're, we're doing your work when you come. That's, the, that's what we want to do. We want to be like Daniel, Lord, serving you up until the very end. Or we just praise you and thank you for, for the ancient of days, for Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and we do say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.